Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask right now that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to us through your word. And I ask that you would grant us faith to to rest in your promises. And I ask that you would grant us joy in Christ, that we would see him clearly and hope in him fully and find rest in him. I pray that you would do this through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. In a strange way, uh, my hope is that this message is a little bit like a piece of strawberry pie. Um, Not strawberry pie like you get at Big Boy, which is not terrible, but not what I mean. I mean strawberry pie like my mom would make when I was little that has a graham cracker crust on the bottom and that is a mixture of strawberry jello with real strawberries and cottage cheese all blended together. So it's a strange sort of pink foamy jello that is enormously delicious and that is topped off with whipped cream on top of that. And so what that does is... Strawberries, as, as you all know, are, are they're, they're a little bit tart, right? There's, there's like a tiny little bite of acid in them. And that's wonderful with sugar and with the cream from whipped cream mixed in. And then what makes it is the graham cracker crust underneath so that you, you have a crumbly little bit of dryness that's mixed with moist strawberries and whipped cream. And it's amazing. Now... My hope is that this message would be a little bit like that in this way. What I've just described, if you hate strawberries, I'm really sorry, because that was probably agony. (laughs) But if you like them, you want to taste it. You want a slice. And my hope with this message is that I would be able to present Jesus so clearly that you would want to know him in a very personal way. Not just know about him, but to know what he is like. To have his presence by the Holy Spirit very real to you in your life. And, and what I just did in describing that pie, that I just appealed to your basic human desires. We, we all like good food. That, I've never met a human that's like, oh, I hate, I hate this eating thing. That's, that's not real. Here's how Jesus is different than that, okay? So I, I want to describe him very clearly from the pages of Scripture so that you understand a little bit about him, so that you get some insight into what he was like when he lived here among us. But, but here's what makes it really different. Your natural humanness will not draw you to Christ. There are things about him you will like, And then there are things about him that you will not like. And in fact, the more you hear about Christ, apart from the work of God, you will probably actually dislike him more and more. You'll like him when he agrees with you, and when he says something that you don't like, you'll be tempted to push him away and to keep him at arm's length. And so here's here's what I hope to do. I want to describe Jesus in the same vividness so that your heart is moved to worship him. Because I really believe the more you see Christ, the more you will want 
to worship him and to trust him. But the problem is we can't always see him clearly. And so my prayer is that God, through the person of the Holy Spirit, would open your eyes and my eyes so that we see Jesus in a real and a true way. And so I want to do with Jesus now, from from the book of Luke, what I did with that pie. I want to describe him in detail And I want to show him in all of his glory. And I want you to know him and I want you to worship him because he is worthy of your worship. And today, specifically, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. And we're going to look at the entire chapter. And I strongly encourage you to open a paper Bible with me. Because before we go through it verse by verse, I'm going to look at a number of verses that might be hard to find if you're scrolling on a phone. So if you if you don't have a paper Bible with you, they're all over the room here. Grab one. Find the book of Luke. In my Bible, it's, it's roughly three quarters of the way through. And you can find it. It's a large book. So just flip through the last part. Find the book of Luke. And then find chapter 5. And I want to encourage you to notice some things about this chapter. So far in the book of Luke, we have seen how God is working out his plan to save the world. Luke says in the very beginning, he's writing this to a young man so that he can know what God has done and how God has fulfilled his promises. And Luke has very carefully done some homework and talked to first-hand witnesses so that he can make an accurate record of what Jesus did while he was with us. And he records how Jesus is born as a little baby, how he's a miraculous baby that is called the son of the most high God, how he doesn't have a human father, but he's fully God and fully man, and how God makes that known right from the beginning. You see how his birth is announced to shepherds and that he is announced as as the savior of the world and how people who knew God from the Old Testament were longing for God to be at work And they began to hear from the Holy Spirit that this little baby was the Messiah. And so you find people in the temple, people like Zechariah who served as a priest. And and you find Simeon, an old man who's there. And and you find an old widow named Anna. And they, they all gather around this baby and they are so excited that this baby is the fulfillment of God's promises and they have longed to see God work. And then you see this little baby. The next time you see him, he's, he's at the age of 12. And as a little young man, he is showing devotion to the word of God. So sometimes people feel like Jesus is really different than the Old Testament. He's not. He loves the Old Testament. And even as a boy, he was devoted to it and he wanted to be in the temple. He said, I want I want to be in my father's house. And that's what Jesus was like. He was devoted to the word of God. And then after age 12, you see him baptized. And so you get the sense right from the beginning of the book, this baby is different. This baby is special. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a teacher. He is the son of the most high. He, he is fully human. He's one of us, but he's also fully divine. So he's not like us in our sin nature. He doesn't share in our sin. And when Jesus steps onto the platform of, of, of this, the sort of world stage, if you will, as he begins his ministry, I can imagine people are thinking, this, this man is, is blameless. He's perfect. He's undefiled. And and, and so there's this kind of expectation that he will hang out with good religious people and he will not hang out with tax collectors and, and prostitutes and sinners. And Jesus defies that expectation 
by going and being baptized with people who want to know God. And so he is baptized as if he is a sinner, even though he is not. And he is showing right at the beginning of his ministry that he is the human. He is the one who is promised, who is going to take the sin of the world. And God announces as he comes up out of the water, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so the heavenly father again and again points to the ministry of Christ. And then after she's a special baby, we, we don't totally understand what he's doing. Then he's, then he's a young man and we see his devotion to the word of God and the prophecies of the Old Testament. And then he is an adult man and he is baptized with sinners And then he goes to the desert and he's tempted by Satan. And what you find is that unlike you and I, when we are tempted, sometimes we fail, sometimes we fall. But Jesus, when Jesus is tempted, he does not fail and he does not fall. So Luke makes it clear that he is sinless, that he can be your savior because unlike you and unlike me, he has never sinned. And so he is able, he's not just your example, He's the one that crushes Satan for you because you couldn't do that and I couldn't do that. And then after he has victory over Satan, he becomes dedicated to preaching. And I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is a preacher because we think about the miracles, we think about the healing, and we also think about... You know how obviously he he dies for our sins on the cross and he rises from the dead and we think of that as the focal point of his ministry. And, And in many ways it is. But notice just the last couple of verses of chapter 4. Jesus says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. That's huge. Jesus says, the reason I'm here is to tell you guys that the kingdom is at hand. I am preaching the good news that all of the blessings that Old Testament saints have longed for All of the feasts and the good food. Remember that pie a second ago I was talking about? All of the the commanded rejoicing where, where they would dance before the Lord at the temple and where they would feast on God's good provision. All of that is looking forward to the kingdom when the king will provide for all of his people and there's peace and there's righteousness and Jesus is saying the kingdom is at hand and I'm announcing that and part of what he's announcing is that if you want to be part of that kingdom, your sin needs to be dealt with. And so he's calling sinners to repentance, holding out the joy of the kingdom. And, and, and today we're going to see a couple of things that I want to highlight, and in a way, I'm going to kind of fly through chapter 5, and I'm going to point out a couple of verses, and if that's a little bit confusing, bear with me. We're going to go through it slower, but if we went through it verse by verse first, I think it would be easy to miss this, and so I want to show you two things. Number one, Jesus' devotion to preaching continues As he works miracles, he's not changing that. He is still committed to reminding people. And what do I mean by preaching? I mean, he is literally taking verses from the Old Testament, which he's already done. His first message, you can read in chapter four. He's literally taking passages of scripture from the Old Testament. He's reminding people what God has said. And then he's explaining it and inviting them to believe those promises that are so particular to the kingdom of God and the joy that comes from knowing God and from having your sins forgiven and he is announcing get ready for the kingdom the kingdom is here the kingdom is here and he is devoted to preaching 
And you can see that in a few different verses. And I'm just going to point them out real quick, and then we'll go back and look through it at the text. You see it in, in verse 5, or excuse me, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. It says, on one occasion... And so you get the sense this is just continuing the story at the end of chapter 4. He says he's going around to different towns. And so on one occasion, as he was preaching the good news, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, that's why they're there. They want to hear what God has said and what God will say to them. He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and then it describes this crazy instance of as he was preaching then he works this miracle for peter and calls peter to follow him that happens as he's preaching and then in the next episode says while he was in one of the cities again because he is going from town to town preaching there came a man full of leprosy and at the end of that account in verse 15 it says now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him to hear him. They wanted to know what the Old Testament meant and they wanted to know what it had to do with their lives. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God and that was also true of the ministry of Christ. He is pointing back to God's promises and inviting people to hear them and as he preaches, he begins to illustrate what that means by working some of these miracles. So, so then you see a little later on, verse 17, again, on one of those days, it's another instance of he's going from town to town and preaching. It says on one of those days, as he was teaching. So he is continuing to preach and teach. He is devoted to that. In fact, verse 16 says he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Why? Because he is communicating with the Father about what to preach. His preaching is to bring the message of God to the people. And he does that by, by using the scriptures and opening the word of God so that people remember the promises of God, so that they rest in them and believe that those promises are coming true and Jesus is bringing those promises to fruition. And, and you see, not only with that story of the paralytic, as he is teaching that this happens, you also see verse 32. Later in chapter, the last episode that we're going to see, Jesus says... I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus never says, I have come here to heal your diseases and to, to heal the lame and to provide you with fish. That's not his purpose in coming. Now, those things are related to why he comes. But he says very clearly at the beginning and at the end of this passage, I was sent for the purpose of preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And then he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance at the end of this chapter. And the whole thing in the middle is demonstrating his continued preaching of that message. And now, there's an integral part. It's the second thing that I want you to notice before we go through it verse by verse. Not just that Jesus is dedicated to preaching and teaching. And I want to mention that because it's so important for our faith that we hear the word of God so that we believe his promises and find the healing and forgiveness that Jesus offers. That's the first thing, that Jesus is dedicated and devoted to that, and we should be too. The second thing is how much these passages talk about sin in relation to the things that Jesus is doing. So the Bible presents 
God as creator of a good world that is broken by sin. So that sickness and disease and poverty and violence and war are all a result of the spiritual problem that runs through the center of each of our hearts. And what Jesus does in each of these circumstances is he goes straight to the root of the problem. And he heals the sin problem and then from there... He works a miracle that shows that when your sin is taken care of, you're welcome back into the presence of God and you experience his blessings. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that at the end of this message because I think there are some things that we just really need to hear in connection with being right with God and waiting for his blessings. But to begin with, notice, so Jesus works this miracle in Peter's life and then in in verse 8, after Peter sees what Jesus does. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, Lord. And Jesus doesn't say to him, no, you're not. You're all right. You're good enough. He doesn't say that. He says, in spite of your sin, he says, do not be afraid, which is huge. Because he, Peter is in the presence of God, and he's aware of that. He says, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. In other words, your life has changed. You are not the same man that you were. He agrees with Peter that he is a sinful man. But he changes his life so he doesn't remain the same. It doesn't mean that Peter never sins again. Just read the rest of the New Testament. There are plenty of examples of where Peter does dumb things, both when Jesus is on earth and after Jesus is off the earth. But he's not the same person after he meets Christ. Then, the leper doesn't clearly mention sin in the same way, but if you know about leprosy from the Old Testament, it's enormously clear that Jesus is doing something remarkable with a man who could not come into the presence of God. If you look at the book of Leviticus, if you have any sort of skin lesion or or any sort of sore, you take yourself to the priest and say, hey, this thing is happening on my body. What is it? And if the priest says it's leprosy, not only can you not go into the temple, into the presence of God, you actually have to leave the city and live outside the city because you're unclean and cannot come into the presence of God. And so what Jesus is doing here, this is not just, it's not like healing the lame. There is a level of ceremonial uncleanness that meant he was separated from God. So he takes a man who's separated from God and he sends him straight to the temple to go talk to the priest. And the temple is where God is. The temple is where Jesus is devoted to. The book begins and ends with the temple and shows how Jesus can bring people to God. And so he does this with a man who was separated from God and then he's healed and able to go back into the presence of God then even clearer he describes in verse 20 he he sees this man who's lame he can't walk and he says man your sins are forgiven you he doesn't start with physical healing he starts with sin and heals the sin and then goes and describes how he can heal physically as well but his emphasis is not on the physical healing and then after that he goes and he calls levi a tax collector who associates with sinners and and levi throws a big party because he chooses to follow christ and so he he wants to welcome tax collectors and others and, and people actually grumble about it and say why are you eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners and, and christ says well i've come to call sinners to repentance I didn't come to hang out with people that seem like they have it together already. 
So you see, in every circumstance in this chapter, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and part of his preaching and teaching is dealing with the sin problem that separates us from God, that causes the suffering in our lives. Now, let me be careful here. I'm not saying, like, if you're suffering today, and I know some of you are. Some of you have had physical problems in the past month that are, that are crazy. Some of you have been hospitalized. I'm not saying that automatically that's because of a sin in your life. The Bible's real clear. It's not always that obvious. But in general, the reason we suffer is that sin exists. The reason we die is that sin exists. If we had not fallen from from grace in Eden, none of this would be a problem. So what Jesus is doing is he is announcing that return to Eden where God is present with men and there is a righteous and a healthy kind of rejoicing. You remember that pie that I talked about early where hopefully you salivated a little bit? Jesus is holding out the promises of the kingdom and you can imagine people who were excited to sing and dance and be full of joy. And, and you can imagine people that would have feasted at the regular feasts that God commanded. He literally commands rejoicing all through the Old Testament they're struggling to obey those because they're living under the oppression of a Roman emperor and the the country is not experiencing God's blessing. So it's like they know these sweet, amazing promises, but they're not enjoying the fullness of God's blessing. And Jesus is saying, the time is here. I am your Messiah. I am your king. Those blessings, they're real. And he is encouraging people to believe, but they have to deal with their sin first. So now that we've seen those two things, Jesus' devotion to preaching, and we've seen his clear teaching that you have to deal with sin if you want to be welcomed into fellowship with God. Let's look at each of them in detail. And my goal and my prayer is that you would see who Christ Jesus is clearly, and you would want to worship him with your whole life, that you would trust him completely, that you would know he knows your needs, he loves you, and he cares about you, and you can see his love and his care and his compassion in each of these places. So look with me first. We're going to see what what Jesus does as he calls Peter and demonstrates the power of the Son of Man over nature. So look with me, verses 1 through 11. It says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. And getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking And so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now I said it in the past, as Jesus is being shown to us by Luke, Luke is very clearly demonstrating when God made man, when he made Adam, he gives him dominion over 
land animals and fish, and he gives him dominion over plants, so he, he is able to command all of nature in the garden before sin. But when sin exists, he starts to be a lousy farmer. Animals quit listening to him. He, he doesn't have the ability to govern and rule because sin has broken that. But what Jesus does is he comes in and he says he doesn't have any sin. And so he is able to perfectly command the wind and the waves. And in this instance, he tells Peter, lower your nets. You're going to get an enormous number of fish. And, and Peter says, I'm a fisherman. I know how this works, and this is not going to work, but I'll listen to you because he has some respect for the Lord as a teacher. He's just heard this guy teach about the word of God, and so he just says, you know, all right, it's not going to hurt anything. And then Peter realizes that Jesus is so much more than somebody who knows a little bit about the word of God. He's so much more than a prophet or a teacher who can help you understand things. He actually has command over nature. And Jesus is someone who has power over fishing. And suddenly Peter realizes that when Jesus is preaching, the kingdom of God is here, Peter realizes, and it actually terrifies him, that he is standing in the presence of the one who is going to bring in God's kingdom. That all of the things he heard about as a little boy in school, all of them were about to come true. And he knows who God is, and he knows those promises of blessing, and he also knows his own sin. And so he knows that he can't enjoy those blessings. He says, depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And the good news for Peter is, Jesus doesn't give up on him because he's a sinner. And he doesn't give up on you, and he doesn't give up on me either. He holds out that blessing, and he says, no, your life is changed. And Peter's life is never the same ever again after he follows Jesus. And in fact, think for just a second. They've got two boatloads full of fish. These boats are probably about 20 feet long. I have no idea how many fish that is. In John's gospel, it says he caught like 153, like good, good size fish. And imagine how much that would have brought in in terms of financial gain and income. Here, there's actually two boatloads full of fish. And Peter, looking at that, this is his livelihood, this is his income. He looks at that and says, I don't even care. Because if I can follow the guy that made that happen, I want to be with Jesus. I want to be with the one who brings the blessings that God has promised. Who cares about two boatloads of fish? I'm going to know this guy for the rest of my life, and who knows what he's going to do for the rest of my life. So Peter leaves it all because he recognizes that there's nothing as valuable as following the Messiah who is bringing the kingdom. So Jesus shows his power over nature, and Peter follows him, and then... He shows his power over leprosy. This this is like AIDS or cancer. This this, this is a totally incurable disease. In fact, it's even worse than that because we've, in recent years, you know, it's like AIDS in the 1980s when everyone was super terrified and they had no idea how it was spread and they, they had some idea, but they didn't know how it would stay contained and they had no idea how to treat it and people just wasted away and died and there was no hope. That's what leprosy was. It made you a social outcast and it cut you off from the presence of God. If you sinned and you wanted to go offer a sacrifice at the temple, you couldn't go. So you remained separated and alienated from God, not only because of sin that you knew about, but because of a disease that you couldn't cure. And so when Jesus meets this man, it's staggering that he touches him 
And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. Read this with me. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. So this this is an advanced case. This is beyond, you know, I have a spot on my arm. Am I okay? This means that it was everywhere on his body and he's probably decaying in some places. And verse 13 Excuse me, verse 12, he says, when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He believes the things that Jesus is saying. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He maintains that devotion to preaching and to knowing the Father and speaking just the right thing. Here's the thing that's staggering about this. Even in the Old Testament, there's one instance of a leper being healed, but nobody touched a leper. If you did, you became unclean. But when Jesus the sinless son of God touches a leper. The leper becomes cleansed and he's able to go into the temple and and he's able to go back into the presence of God, to come back into a right relationship with God as he believes God's promises and then puts those promises into action by obeying. So he's saved by faith and then he begins to obey, which is the exact same order that we do it in. We believe by faith and then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we begin to obey the Lord and we begin to love what's right and what's true. And you see Jesus doing that. I mean, he, he heals the uncleanness that lets him go back into the presence of God. And there he begins to obey and he begins to be in a right relationship And Jesus demonstrates his ability to cleanse people who are unclean. Then he shows he not only is dealing with uncleanliness, but he has the power over physical paralysis. So look look with me at verses 70 and 26, and, and here's where we see some things enormously clearly about what sin is and how it relates to this. And in verse 17, he says, On one of those days, as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is the only person in the Bible to ever say that. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God of their thoughts? He answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, and he picked up what he'd been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. 
Now notice, here, here's the thing. Jesus is preaching the message of the kingdom. He, he's preaching that if you repent of your sins, you can find forgiveness, which is totally consistent with what the Old Testament says. When you repent, God has mercy and he forgives. How do you know that that's true though? And when Jesus says to someone, your sins are forgiven, when you, believing what the Bible has, has told you, that if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How do you know that's true? How do you know that's actually going to work? Jesus does this miracle so that you know that he can forgive sins. When he asks the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Now, here's the thing. There were people in the Old Testament who did miracles, who healed. Jesus is not the only person in the Bible that heals. But he is the only person in the Bible to have the audacity to say, on behalf of God, your sins are forgiven. So although we look at this and in one sense say, well, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven, but you don't know if they really are. So in reality, it's easy to say it, but the question is, did it actually happen? Jesus' point is it's actually harder to say that and have it be true. No one else can say it. But so that you know that his word is true, he demonstrates his ability to heal, not because healing is a greater miracle, but because you can see it. You can verify it. And when Luke is writing this, he wants you to know that Jesus has this power. He wants you to know that your sins can be forgiven by the Savior of the world. And he's telling you about this because he wants you to rest. That when Jesus offers you forgiveness, he really means it. And he demonstrated his power when he was here. And I believe by the power of the Holy Spirit, as you read these things and as you listen to what Jesus did... You can find your faith strengthened. If Jesus was able to publicly heal a man who was lame and no one denied that he worked miracles, Jesus is saying that kind of miracle verifies what I'm telling you about your sins. If you wrestle with feelings of guilt, like you think God can forgive other people, but maybe he can't forgive you, and I think all of us, will wrestle with that at some point, especially if you're a Christian and you've messed up in a way that seems really big, you're going to feel at some point, Satan's going to lie to you and say, you know what, God's really still angry with you about that. You know, you, you might be God's child, but, but you're like the black sheep of the family. You're not really welcomed into the presence of God. That's what Satan's going to want you to believe. And Jesus is showing you how true it is that your sins really are forgiven. So then the question becomes, will Jesus do this for anybody or everybody? Because people aren't coming to him in these stories and leading with, God, I got a sin problem. Can you forgive me? They, they are actually coming and saying, you know, I, I have leprosy or, or I'm paralyzed. And they want him to fix that problem. And instead, Jesus is dealing with the sin problem first. And it seems like he takes that initiative. So if Jesus takes that initiative for some people, the big question then becomes, will he do that for anybody? Will he do that for everybody? And the rest of the text shows you how big the heart of Jesus is. And so this morning, as I hold Jesus up, I want you to know that he loves you no matter what you've done, Christian or non-Christian, where you're at with your walk with God, Jesus loves you this much. So look with me at his heart. Look at verse 27 with me. We're going to read through the end of the chapter. It says, After this, 
he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. There's joy in following Jesus. He's not sad to leave everything. He's not like, man, I had to walk away from it all. No, he is thrilled that Jesus has called him to follow him. And he throws this giant party and it says, there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And notice, Jesus doesn't say, I'm not eating with sinners. He, he doesn't deny it. He, he goes the other way, and Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And Jesus issues an open invitation. It doesn't matter what you've done, Jesus will welcome you when you are willing to say, God, I'm wrong. I have a sin problem and I need you to forgive me. I need you, Jesus, to forgive me for my sins. Jesus welcomes anyone and everyone. We hate the IRS today, but in Jesus' day, tax collectors were not just seen as people who took your money. They were seen as traitors. They literally served the Roman Empire that oppressed the Jews and persecuted them. So when Levi took the money of his fellow Jews... He was giving it to people that were killing his fellow Jews. He would have been seen as an absolute sellout. He wouldn't have been welcome to worship God. He would have been considered one of the worst of the worst. And Jesus extends grace to Levi. Levi doesn't stay in that profession. He leaves it and recognizes that there's something greater in following Christ than the money that he could have made as a tax collector. But not everyone is happy to see Jesus welcome sinners like that. And so, look at verse 33, and this is huge. I don't know if if your Bibles do this as well. My Bible has like this little section break, as if he's talking about something different now. But that's that's one of the worst section breaks I have ever seen in the Bible, because he's not. It, It continues the exact same conversation. Verse 32, Jesus says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. Verse 33, and they said to him in reply, they are replying to what he has just said. So the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink, which is what they are doing in this conversation. They are eating and drinking with Levi and Levi's friends. And Jesus answered and said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, he's saying The party is now because I'm here. And they are celebrating the forgiveness of sins that welcomes them into the presence of God. And we are about to see the kingdom of God really begin. And then he says this, which is so important for us. Verse 35, he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. There's going to come a time when Jesus is not with his people. And Jesus at the beginning of his ministry is saying that. And in those days, we long for our king to come and provide us with those blessings. We may experience all kinds of disappointments in life now. Because King Jesus is not reigning with us. He is reigning And Paul does say that all things work together for your good. But right now, while King Jesus is not with us, 
Sometimes, like God does in the life of Joseph, God takes what's intended for evil in your life. He takes your sickness and he takes your disease and he, and he takes the things that are terrible that do happen to you and he uses them to bless you. That's not what the kingdom of Jesus is going to be like when Jesus is reigning. When Jesus is reigning, there's not going to be any evil. There's not going to be any sickness. There's going to be joy and abundance every day without end for all of eternity. And we sang Amazing Grace before I started preaching. It says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, there's no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. That's the kingdom of God. It's the fullness of joy. But here's the crazy thing. Not everybody's happy about it. Verse 36, Jesus also told them a parable in connection with all of this. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put in fresh wineskins and no one after drinking the old wine desires the new. For he says, the old is good. Now, what on earth is he talking about? How is that connected to Levi and sins? Uh, like, I'm glad that you guys are asking this question. We need to ask questions like this of the text. What does he mean? Here's what he means. If you look at chapter 6, Jesus is about to start fighting with the Pharisees. He's, at this point, chapter 5, there's not been a ton of conflict. He's had one problem with his hometown in chapter 4, but mostly crowds are flocking to him and his ministry looks enormously successful and he's not having huge problems with the religious leaders yet. They're coming and they're questioning him, but they're not antagonistic. But what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to quit hanging out with sinners. You guys have a problem with the reality that sinners are finding forgiveness through me. And that's not changing. You like your rituals and your rules and you want to see people like you welcomed into the kingdom and you don't want to see people who are different from you welcomed into God's family. But that's not going to work. And if you're content with the way things were, the new wine that Jesus is bringing, the new promise of the kingdom and the joy, that's going to destroy you. You are not going to be able to experience the blessings of God if you reject Jesus Christ and his willingness to forgive anyone and everyone. Now, here's how this really applies to you and I. I'm going to say this in two different ways. First, it means we need to be open to what Jesus is going to do at First Baptist of Holly in 2019 and for the rest of our lives. Jesus might want to do some things in our church that might make you uncomfortable, there are churches that have amazing addiction services. My buddy Ernesto is doing an addiction service up at Flint, and they're welcoming in al alcoholics and users, and they have people who relapse, and they have people that do serious, terrible things. And Jesus is saving some of them. And it's exciting, and it's awesome to see that happen. But believe it or not, sometimes people get grumpy when you welcome a drug addict into the church because they're like, who is that guy? You know, what if he brings drugs into the church? Well, you know what? Maybe he will, and that's not good, but maybe he'll meet Jesus. And so if, if Jesus wants our church to try ministry, and, and you know, we, you all know, we just legalized recreational marijuana. 
There are tons of Christians that look down their nose at people that, that do marijuana, even for medical reasons. And I'm not saying that marijuana is great. I don't think it is. I think it's really harmful. But we ought to love those people. You don't look at them and say, you know, there's a worthless user. You look at them and say, there's a person that Jesus loves, and he's self-medicating real pain in his life. And we ought to care enough about people that smell like skunks to share the message of Jesus with them and to not care if we smell like that too. Jesus wants to do new things in our church. And my, my challenge for you is to be open to whatever Jesus wants to do here. Here's the other thing, and, and I think and with this I'll close, and, and this is so critical. Jesus says very clearly, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here's what I think Jesus does in all of these miracles. He's giving you a preview of what will happen in the kingdom. He's letting you know what kingdom life is like. Kingdom life, there is an abundance of good food. Kingdom life, there are no lepers or lame people. There are no people with cancer. There are no people with AIDS. In kingdom life, there is joy and there is abundance. But you know what? So far, we've got the preview, but the movie has not been released yet. We're we're not there. And a lot of people long to see Jesus do all of the same miracles today. And, And I believe that he can and sometimes does. But you know what? Sometimes he uses the evil in your life for his glory. Paul says, whether I live or die, it's all for Christ Jesus. And I think for you and I, we have to say, whether I'm healed or called home, my life is for Jesus and I live for his glory. And so right now, we're in a time of fasting, not so that we earn favor with God. God's not impressed when you skip a meal so that you can pray. We're fasting because we long for the blessings of Jesus. And we long for them in our lives. I want the kind of joy that those people had when they saw that man get up and take his mat and go home. I don't have that joy every day. I want it. I want it bad. And so I want to see Jesus clearly. And as I wait for him to return, and that joy is a present everyday reality for 10,000 years and forevermore, I sometimes am so sad that I don't experience it that that I, I will go without food and say, Jesus, where are you? Where are you in my life? Where are you in my friends that don't know you? And we long for the king to come and bring all of these blessings. And so this morning, my hope is that you get a sense of how good Jesus is, how full of compassion he is, that he's willing to touch a leper who looked disgusting. That when, that when people bring a crippled man, he doesn't say, hey, I'm in the middle of a sermon. He stops and and he sees their faith and really sees them and loves them. And he forgives the man's sins and then he heals the man. That's the Savior that we serve. That's the Savior that we're waiting for. And so if today you don't know him, let me encourage you to be like one of those people and find repentance and forgiveness for your sins and be welcomed back into the presence of God. And if you do know him, let me say to you today that while we long for the blessings of God, Jesus loves you. Your Savior loves you so much. And while you maybe are, are dealing with different diseases and, and some, some of you are getting a little bit older, 
I'm getting a little bit older, and that sounds really funny to some of you, but I have pains that I didn't have when I was in my teens. Unless Jesus comes back, all of us here are going to get weaker and die someday. And while we wait for Jesus, don't give up. He loves you. He is coming for you. And the future is amazing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, you are so good and so kind, and and we thank you that you sent Jesus so that we could see what you're like. And Lord, I ask that you would bless us now, that we would worship him with our whole hearts, and that we would have the hope and the promises that we find in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.